the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm your host, Denver Frederick. Tonight, we'll first explore programs that are being provided to those with physical and intellectual disabilities, and then I'll speak to the founder of an organization that is offering opportunities for young men of color to establish careers in the tech sector. My first guest is Peter Burns, the president and CEO of the Ark of the United States, an organization founded in 1950. Their mission is clear. But I think uh, what's really important is focusing on what we all have in common. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's, that's the mission of promoting and protecting the civil rights of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and actively supporting them to be included in their communities um, and fully participate in their communities across the, the lifespan. And then you'll hear from Christina Lewis, the founder and president of All Star Code. She was among the first to understand the importance of having more people of color in the tech sector and decided to do something about it. Well, All Star Code was founded to increase the pipeline of blacks and Latinos who are majoring in computer science in college and getting jobs in tech. But we do that by focusing on boys of color starting Mm -hmm. in high school. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, February 2nd. Johns Hopkins University is eliminating legacy admissions. One in eight students had been admitted because of benefits accorded to alumni. That number will now be zero. Yale will stop teaching a storied introductory survey course in art history. This change is the latest response to student uneasiness over idealized Western canon, a product of an overwhelmingly white, straight, European, and male cadre of artists. Presidential candidate Andrew Yang has proposed giving every American $100 a year from the government to donate to a charity of their choice. It's called the Prosperity Grant Program and would funnel $20 billion a year to nonprofits and increase civic engagement in local communities. And finally... Visiting the library remains the most common cultural activity Americans engage in by far. The average ten and a half trips to the library was double the second-ranked leisure activity going to the movies. And that is a Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Peter Burns right after this. You probably know Sesame Street as the TV show that taught you letters and numbers. But Sesame is so much more. Sesame Workshop is a nonprofit with a mission to help all children grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. Big Bird wants to help, so he started the Yellow Feather Fund to bring education to children in need. You can help, too. Visit yellowfeatherfund.org to learn more or make a donation. That's yellowfeatherfund.org. Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. 
The ARC promotes and protects the human rights of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. It also actively supports their full inclusion and participation in the community throughout their lifetimes. It's a big mission, and it is led by our next guest. He is Peter Burns, the president and CEO of the ARC. Good evening, Peter, and welcome to the Business of Giving. It's great to be here at Denver. Share with us the history of the ARC and how the organization has evolved since its founding. Sure. Well, some of the origins we can actually trace back to the 1930s, uh, but the organization was officially founded in 1950, and it really was started by parents. And there's a really interesting story about the ARC, and when I speak about parents, I'm really talking about moms. Mm. And this was back in the day when if you had a, a child with significant disabilities, intellectual disabilities, you very well may have been told by your doctor, why don't you let them institutionalize your child, sign over your parental rights to the state, and go home and take care of the rest of your family. Best so, for you and best for the child. Right, mm-hmm. right. And these are moms who said, no, yeah. they're not going to do that. <laughs> and uh, families, and they took their children home, and they started working in local, uh, started working to create better life opportunities for their sons and daughters with disabilities. And it started kind of organically, a true grassroots nonprofit fashion. All around the country is these organizations um, popping up. And then in the late 1940s, they found each other and decided to start a new organization, a national organization. And that's how the ARC was born. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does sound like church basements, doesn't it? It's church basements, <laughs> people's people's living room. And in New York, you hear the story of the mom who put an ad in the paper looking for other moms. Yeah, and that's, yeah. how, that's how it all began. What does intellectual and developmental disabilities include? The most common diagnoses that people are um, aware of are conditions like Down syndrome or autism spectrum disorder, uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, fragile X uh, syndrome. But there are literally 200 different diagnoses that Mm. kind of manifest or fit within the category of an intellectual or developmental disability. And they're really characterized by, um, you know, below – by IQ – and limits that people experience in their functional capacity and their ability to you know, kind of deal with some of the basics of day-to-day life. Yeah. How is the organization structured? You're a federation, right? So, so we are um, a federation, in which, which means uh, we have 610 chapters around the country. We've got local chapters on the front line that are working uh, to serve people and their, and their families. We've got state chapters that are very involved in advocacy um, at the state level and organizing folks in, in support of advocacy um, at the nation, national level. And then we also have the national organization. And each of our local units and state units are a separate nonprofit organization. And we all band together in this federation structure, flying the same flag and committed to the same values and the same uh, principles and, and the same mission. What's the key to leading a federation? I mean, this doesn't sound like an easy task when you have all these hundreds of independent nonprofit organizations, but you have to be singing from the same playing book. Um, as a, the CEO, what's what's the key to yeah. making all of that work? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I often refer to that uh, that my job involves herding cats, yeah, and sure. there's you know there's very much that that element to it. Um, you know, but I think uh, what's really important is focusing on what we all have in common, mm-hmm. and you know that's that's the mission of promoting, protecting the civil rights of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and actively supporting them to be included in their communities. 
um, and fully participate in their communities across the, the lifespan. You know, and this is an organization that that serves people from you know prenatal diagnoses that a family may receive before before a child with disabilities is born to to end of life issues. So we're involved with every aspect of the life of people with disabilities. And what I find interesting, and you mentioned it before about your founding, is that to be part of this federation, the local chapter really has to have the deep involvement of the family and the siblings leading the organization. Is that true? Family, the siblings, and individuals with disabilities themselves. And, you know, yeah. that's that's one of the things that really distinguishes the ARC from other developmental disability organizations is since the days of the founding to the present, family mm. have been critical to the leadership of this organization. It started with the parents and then siblings joined along and, and then folks with disabilities themselves as they came out of institutions like Willowbrook, yeah. uh, they started speaking for themselves and started to call themselves self-advocates, and they became very important leaders in, in the movement um, as well. well. That's great. Yeah, too many of them are, are – these organizations are run by the professionals and by board members who can give a check and not by people who have really been touched well, by, the, by the issue. They're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> no, they're not mutually exclusive. That's right. exactly right. Well, your three biggest areas of service are education, employment, and housing. So let's briefly talk about the work that you're doing in each, starting with education. What does that entail? So, um, you know, there, there are very big problems and challenges for um, folks with disabilities, uh, students with disabilities mm-hmm. in, in the education system. You know, we, ha- we have a, um, a national law that, re- that entitles students with disabilities to receive a free, appropriate public education in the le- least restrictive setting. You know, that's been a vision for many years now, but we're not really accomplishing that. So our chapters are really, really involved in providing support to families to help them navigate the complexity of the special education system and get what they need for their children with disabilities. A lot of our chapters also do after-school programs. Mm-hmm. They, do, they do summer um, programs. And they're very involved in, in policy um, advocacy. You know, one, advocacy to try to get special education in the schools fully funded. Um, and two, also advocacy to, to address um, you know, tough issues like um, inappropriate use of seclusion and restraint mm. um, in, in the schools. Mm-hmm. How do you help your clients with employment? Well, it's another big area of challenge for folks with disabilities. The sad reality is that, well, um, many if not most uh, adults, working age adults with disabilities could be working. Only about 15 percent are employed. Wow. Many would like to be working. So our chapters are engaged in a variety of activities in this area. Some of them operate businesses that actually employ people with disabilities. They help support people with disabilities to find jobs in in the uh, mainstream employment marketplace um, and um, help uh, folks be successful in those jobs. Uh, just um, earlier this week, I was at, for example, um, earlier this week, I was at a meeting with the CEO of Advance Auto Parts. Hmm. And we just launched a national partnership with Advance to help them place um, to recruit and place individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities um, into their distribution centers and their retail stores. And yesterday when we were, to, we were talking with the CEO, we were talking about placing folks into their headquarters as well. Fantastic. Those are the kind of partnerships you need to, to, to move the needle. We're really excited about that. Yeah. And, of course, housing. 
is always a big issue and a challenge. What are some of your more successful successful initiatives here? Yeah. So a lot of our chapters around the country um, actually operate housing. They operate um, gr- group homes, uh, you know, small group homes to support folks living in the community, and then they also su- provide supports for folks to to live in apartments and homes on their own and mm-hmm. you know, providing the services and support someone needs to, um, to be successful living um, independently. And they also provide supports um, to um, families where their adult son or daughter with disabilities is, is living, still living at home with mom and dad. And part of the reality, one of the challenges we face in, in this area is, is that um, about you know, the majority, about 75 percent of adults with disabilities continue to live with mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those families, and, and that includes more than a million families nationwide, where mom and dad are in their 60s and, and older. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of those families don't have a plan for what's going to happen in the future I'm sure. when mom and dad can no longer support their, their son or daughter. So we're doing a lot of work um, nationally and with our chapters around the country around future planning and have created a lot of tools and resources to help families plan for the future. Where is their son or daughter? Uh, the, where is the individual going to live? Um, and uh, you know, how are they going to build a, a really rich, robust life um, independently in the community? What are some of the answers to that, as an example? Because that's a tough, tough question. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it takes um, it takes planning. Yeah. Um, and uh, it takes uh, you know really marshalling all the resources that are available in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the big challenges with we, we have this. Well, the arc has um, been successful over, over the years. You know, in advocating for the creation of programs and funding streams that provide services and supports for people with disabilities, but the the reality is, the government funded programs are only supporting about fifteen percent of the families that need help. Mm. Um, and so, lots of families are really left fending uh, for themselves. But ultimately, what we need to do is we need to marshal all the the resources. We need to marshal the the government resources. We need to marshal private resources. Um, you know. Through through charity and, and uh, you know just through through friendships and and um, and professional associations um, and uh, we we need to um, garner more attention yeah. and investment in, um, in this cause. You know, you said the government is helping about fifteen percent of the families that need help. What is the total universe in terms of families that um, have this uh, this challenge? Yeah. Uh, General estimates are there are around 7 million people with okay. intellectual and developmental disabilities um, in the um, country. Mm-hmm. You know, I should add, uh, the organization also provides services within the criminal justice system through your National Center on Criminal Justice and Disability. A key initiative there is the Pathways to Justice program. Tell us all about yeah. that. So one thing that folks really don't understand is that individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities are overrepresented in the juvenile justice system, Mm -hmm. and they're overrepresented in our jails and prisons. And there's something of a pipeline that goes from one to the the other, as um, I'm sure you you know. Um, So what we're trying to do through our Pathways to Justice uh, program is – Educate all the players in the law in the law enforcement system. You know, from the first responder, the police officer, uh, to the prosecutors and defense attorneys and, and the judges, to first recognize when they are encountering someone who has an intellectual and developmental disability, and then to make sure that they provide 
the necessary accommodation and support so, the, so folks are treated fairly in the criminal justice system. And across the whole process from you know arrest through, uh, unfortunately, in some cases, incarceration mm-hmm. when people commit crimes. Peter, I can only imagine the challenge it is is to cover this incredibly wide spectrum and breadth of services. How do you go about managing that? Well, you know, it's funny. I often joke that as a as a chief executive officer of an organization like this, I only get to know a little bit about a lot of different <laughs> a lot of different subjects. You know, so, so it is really um, quite a challenge. You know, part of um, the way we do it, though, is we have a tremendously talented, uh, knowledgeable staff at the national level, mm-hmm. and and we also recognize that the the strength of the arc as an organization is we have tremendously talented, knowledgeable people all across the Federation. You know, part of our task as a national organization is to try to figure out how to harness the collective intelligence, the collective knowledge and experience across our 610 chapters and then really put it to, put it to good use. Yeah. And so we do a lot, of, a lot of work organizing chapters to work together, whether it's in criminal justice or future planning or special education advocacy or use of technology to support people with disabilities. We try to bring our chapters together to work together, learn from one another and advance the field in that way. That's very smart. Tap the experts and then disseminate the information. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. The organization is known for being very effective up on Capitol Hill. What have been some of your federal policy, uh, public policy successes, and what are the big things you're working on at the moment? So um, over the years, the ARC has been instrumental. Has been We've been a major player in every, every development that has advanced the civil rights of people with disabilities mm-hmm. has been put in place the programs and supports that they need to, to live in the community. What were some of those um, So, uh, you know, b- big example of that is the, the creation of the social – of the uh, – S- Social Security Disability Insurance Program, yep. the the SSI or Supplemental Security um, Disability Insurance Program, Medicaid funded home and community based services, the enactment of the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, the passage of the law that requires now requires um, free appropriate public education for, for um, public school students, um, students with with disabilities, um, and um, you know m- more recently uh, the Affordable Care Act, which yeah. is uh, critically important to folks with disabilities, and um, also the Able Act, which allows families that have children with disabilities to create disability savings accounts, kind of analogous to education savings accounts. Some so big wins. A, lo- a lot of big wins. A lot of big challenges that we still face. Yeah. What are some of those? Well, um, frankly, the last three years, we've really been fighting something of a a defensive battle. I often describe it as uh, working to prevent the dismantling of everything that we built the the prior 70 years (laughs) um, building. So, um, but um, that's been been the major battle. And then really trying to figure out how do we break through um, this problem of, um, you know, the system only serving about 15% of the the people. Mm. And how do we break through? One of the other really big problems that we're currently facing in in this field is that the um, organizations, our chapters and other organizations that serve people with disabilities or families when they're looking for help, um, there's a a real, what we refer to as the direct support workers crisis. You know, we really have trouble finding the workers who are going to do the one-to-one personal support for individuals with disabilities. And if you can't get good workers who are going to stay, quality of life for the f- folks being um, with disabilities um, is going to decline. Yeah. 
Well, the best workers have always been the caregivers and the time commitment they need to make and the stress that inherit in doing this is really significant. Um, talk a little bit about the caregivers and, yeah. and what their challenges are. So when you, you think of caregivers, you know, there are really two groups here. You have the professional caregivers, yeah. the direct support workers who have really challenging jobs and, and there isn't enough funding in the system to give them adequate pay. And mm-hmm. so there's a high turnover and we're losing talent constantly. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one group. The bigger group, of yeah. course, are, are the parents and the family members yeah, that's what I was thinking who, about. who yeah. are providing the day-to-day oh. um, care. And the data, you know, we've done a lot of research in this area, and the reality is that uh, folks who are caregivers are really stressed out, and they're grappling with a lot of challenges. They're having trouble uh, balancing their their work responsibilities and, and their caregiving um, responsibilities, and they are desperately in need of more support. And one of the the things that we're actually working on now is, you know, we're trying to start up a dialogue with a number of, of businesses, and really looking at the subject of how can a business better support those of its employees who are caregivers. Because the reality we know from the research, and actually Harvard Business School recently came out with a study on this, is every workforce has a lot of folks in it who are caregivers, Mm -hmm. who are struggling with the day-to-day of caregiving. And businesses need to do a lot more to support caregivers. And we're looking actually to pilot a new program where the ARC would be involved working with business to provide a caregiving employee benefit. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. To uh, you know, bring more help to the caregivers. Fantastic. Well, a lot of the cohort you serve, um, for them, traveling can be stressful and even a frustrating process. The ARC has a program to address that. It's called Wings for Autism, Wings for All. Tell us about it. This is, this is really exciting, and it's a great demonstration of the, of the power that is in the ARC. So we have a program, Wings for Autism. It originated in Boston. When one family went to one of our chapters and described a problem they had with their son with, um, on the autism spectrum, um, you know, not being able to successfully navigate through the airport. Mm. And the ch- chapter then created this program called Wings for Autism, where the, it's a travel simulation where the family go and the individual with disabilities goes and checks in at the ticket counter. They go through TSA. They go to the gate area. They board a plane. And so they can practice that whole experience before they spend a lot of money buying tickets for a vacation only to find out that they can't do it. Yeah. Um, and this, problem, this uh, program originated um, in Boston, and we have since um, spread it nationwide. So this year we had – or last year we had – Um, 40 Wings for Autism or Wings for All events in airports around the country. And we're getting wonderful stories of families coming back to us telling how, you know, their son or daughter could finally go see grandma living across the country when they had never been able to do that before. What a wonderful idea. And as you say, it's, again, one chapter coming up with that idea and then disseminating it. And now the program is just, well, it's getting its own wings and it's beginning to spread. Well, that's right. It's really, it's really <laughs> taken off. There you go. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> um, ARC has historically received the lion's share of its support from the federal government. And I know that you have wanted to bring more private philanthropy to the table. Um, Peter, how are those efforts coming? And to a degree that they've been successful, what are some of those revenue streams? Yeah. So for our federation as a whole, as you described, a lot of the money comes from the federal government and state governments through the Medicaid program. Mm -hmm. The Medicaid program is the single largest source of funding 
for home and community-based services that support people um, with disabilities. And so by and large, um, those funds aren't growing anymore. Mm. So our chapters need to look to other sources um, of, of revenue. And really um, working on, you know, knocking on the doors of foundations and companies and, of course, um, individuals l- looking for that support. Part of the challenge in this area is disability has really been has been not on the radar screen for a lot of uh, folks in the philanthropic community, mm-hmm. particularly the, the foundations um, and the corporations. And so we're really working working to change that. We're w- working on a, knocking on a lot of doors, educating folks about. The role of people with disabilities in the um, in the community, the presence of people with disabilities, and their and the unique challenges that they and their family members face, and we're starting to gain some some momentum, att- attracting more resources, uh, more philanthropic resources to the cause. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned one corporate partnership uh, already. Give us one or two others that you have that are really helping your uh, pro- you know promote your work. Well, I mentioned uh, Advance Auto Parts mm-hmm. um, is a new partner. We have a longstanding relationship with Comcast, NBC, Universal, which has been very supportive of some of the work that we're doing um, around uh, the use of technology and supporting people with disabilities. Oh, that's cool. Um, and they just—I mean, we were we were thrilled. They just over this past uh, year decided to extend their Internet Essentials program to folks with disabilities who are on um, SSI to make the internet available to lots of folks who previously haven't had it available. But great great working relationship with Comcast, NBC Universal, um, with Walmart, oh, yeah. um, and uh, you know quite a few um, smaller companies as well. Mm-hmm. What's it like working at the ARC? You know, the corporate culture, what's the best thing about it in yeah. your mind, and what are you working on to make it better? Sure. Um, one of the, the major ahas to me when I came on board at the ARC uh, almost 12, 12 years ago um, was to discover the passion that people bring to this cause. And one of the – and that's really one of the strengths of the, of the culture of the feder- federation. And it, you know, it's really understandable that a lot of our, our folks on boards, on staff, our parents or family members, they have a personal stake. But the passion – extends well beyond that. Anybody who gets involved in this cause, it seems, gets to be passionate about it. Um, and, and that's a, you know, a really central part of the culture. The other thing is um, a sense of um, responsibility that crosses generations. Hmm. And that families look to this organization to protect the rights of their sons and daughters with disabilities after they're gone. Hmm. And people will say that to us. And, and, you know, for those of us hearing that message, it just tells us, you know, we, we have an awesome responsibility yeah. in leading this organization. What would you like to get better at? Well, we're really working hard to get better at fundraising, to yep. get to to um, venture into the world more aggressively of, of social media and, uh, you know, Get folks to know who the ARC is because we are one of the most well-kept secrets, you know, eighth largest charity federation in the country, 610 chapters, 4,700 service locations, and it seems there are too many people out there who just don't know who we are and the extraordinary work that we're doing for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Branding, branding, branding. (laughs) Well, I hope this helps at least a little bit. Let me close with this, Peter. You've done some studies and surveys measuring how our nation is doing to support people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families. How are we doing, and what needs to happen for us to do better? 
We've made tremendous progress in this country over the last 70 years in improving life opportunities for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and we still have a long, long way to go for people to be fully included in their communities. And we recently have come to think that the basic problem we're still facing is that um, the average person out in the community doesn't know anyone with an intellectual or developmental disability. Mm-hmm. And, and there isn't you know, a fundamental, fundamental respect for the humanity of these individuals. You know, they're different. You don't understand who they are, what mm-hmm. they're what they're like, and so there's a dynamic there that we need to, and that's holding us back. Yeah, there's a dynamic there that we really need to change, and so really encourage everyone to get to know someone with an intellectual developmental disability. Don't look the other way if you if you see someone who obviously looks different and. A lot of times these are invisible disabilities, so you won't know. But if you see someone who looks different or you, you encounter someone with, a, with an intellectual or developmental disability, get to know them, and it will enrich your life, and it will do good for everyone. Well, Peter Burns, the president and CEO of The ARC, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Where can people find additional information about the organization, your services, and maybe provide some support for all that you do? Best thing to do is go to our website, thearc.org, T-H-E-A-R-C.org, and when you're on the site, you can also click through and locate one of our chapters right here in your community. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Peter. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Denver. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. A simple smile can say so much. It can say thank you, please, or even I love you. Sometimes a smile can say more than words could ever express. But what if you couldn't smile? Unfortunately, that's the sad reality for so many children today. Without the help of life-saving surgery, helpless children find themselves cast aside and all alone. But it doesn't have to be this way. To learn how you can help Smile Train, the world's largest cleft charity, change the world one smile at a time, go to smiletrain.org. Before you give to charity, go to CharityNavigator.org. Charity Navigator provides free ratings of thousands of America's largest charities, helping you get the most out of your charitable dollar. CharityNavigator.org, your guide to intelligent giving. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at DenverFrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. My next guest has the uncanny ability to look around the corner and see issues before they become widely disseminated in the press and discussed by the public. One example of that would be the lack of people of color in the tech sector and the consequences of that, something she identified well before most others did. It was that realization that inspired her to start All-Star Code in 2013, providing boys and young men of color the mindset and tools they need to succeed in a technological world. And it's a pleasure to have with us this evening the founder and president of All-Star Code, Christina Lewis. Good evening, Christina, and welcome to The Business of Giving. Uh, Good evening, Denver. Thank you so much for having me here on The Business of Giving. Take us to the moment where the inspiration for All-Star Code was first formed. Where and when did it appear? It was 2011, and I was on a cruise ship. 
<laughs> Best thinking happens on cruise ships. Well, this was an unusual cruise. It was billed, it was a conference, a summit, a multi-day summit, uh, billed as Davos for Millennials, mm-hmm. if you can believe that. And I ended up there very randomly. Um, it was uh, full of tech startup people, tech entrepreneurs, and... Um, I was a journalist at the time and had gotten invited through friends, and I'd never been to a tech conference, and was stunned at how few black and Latino people were um, were participating in startups. The um, the this and it was there were a thousand people at this conference, mm-hmm. and I couldn't find barely any who were black and Latino who were really. Um, successfully participating in startups. Uh, and I, as soon as I saw that, I knew that um, this was a huge problem. Um, as I'd been a reporter at the Wall Street Journal uh, covering uh, various industries, including real estate. And so I saw that, um, I knew that tech was driving um, was driving industry, not just tech itself, but it was driving every industry. And I also knew that this was where innovation was happening, where the jobs were, but where there was so much impact. Yeah, all the um, cool stuff. All the cool <laughs> stuff. It's the, it's the ticket into the 21st century. And that if black and Latino people weren't participating in the startup scene, that they were absent from a sector and even from a conversation mm-hmm. and from a whole societal area that would leave... Um, these disadvantaged groups even further behind. Oh, and that is the challenge of innovation, that the people who benefit most from innovation are often the most affluent. The yeah. people who are most positioned, when who are already ahead of the curve, they are able to catch the wave and get even more ahead of the curve. So that was the moment. That was the genesis. That was the genesis of realizing that this was a problem. Well, taking then, this off the cruise ship. And looking at it from a macro point of view, give us Mm -hmm. a snapshot of the representation of blacks and Latinos in the tech sector today. Uh, So only 1% of VC-backed startups have a black or Latino on the founding team. Wow. Um, And many uh, companies will be only... 9% 9% black and Latino, many technology companies. Now, if you were to look at engineering or computer science, I'll give you another statistic at the number of engineers, say, at a major company. That number who are black and Latino is far lower, far below their representation in the population. Let's take a statistic about computer science uh, focused on boys, young men of color, which is the focus of All Star Code. Uh, only 4,000 black and Latino boys passed the AP computer science exam last year Mm -hmm. in the entire country. So that's in 2018. Of that, um, only 600 roughly were black boys. Uh, In the entire country in 2018, only 600 black boys took and passed the AP Computer Science A exam. Now, that exam is essentially, uh, that's the number of boys who are at least involved enough in computer science to have done it in high school. And unfortunately, that matches really closely to who ends up in who ends up in engineering. And that's not to say that you can't learn it in college. Mm -hmm. And and absolutely, there are many paths into it. But 
600 is such a tiny it's a number. It's a good indicator. It is. It's a good indicator on a um, you know on the millions of black and Latino students who are um, who are in this country. So see. you started All Star Code back in 2013. Mm-hmm. What exactly is the program, and what what do these young men go through? Um, well, All Star Code was founded to increase the pipeline of blacks and Latinos who are majoring computer science in college and getting jobs in tech. But we do that by focusing on boys of color starting Mm -hmm. in high school. That's because there were already a number of programs helping girls Girls succeed in STEM, including Girls Who Code, and I know the founder quite well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's our lens. With that, we recruit interested students who are in high school uh, or at least interested in the concept of computer science. But then we expose them to uh, to coding, mm-hmm. but also to the industry. Um, and we do that through a six-week summer intensive, but as well as year-round lighter-touch engagement events. Now, our program, our, what we do and why we're successful is that we don't just think about how to code and getting good at coding. We think about the whole suite of holistic skills that um, that students will need if they want to study computer science in college or get a job in tech. That includes um, presentation, knowing how to communicate and speak to people, networking, but knowing how to develop a relationship and introduce yourself. It includes um, uh, understanding how how these companies work and mm-hmm. what the different roles are and career pathways. Uh, so we have an emphasis on mentorship and mm-hmm. networking. We work very closely with a number of major technology companies, including uh, uh, including um, Google, including AT and T, as well as financial companies and other major Fortune 500 companies that. Um, uh, that partner with us to expose the students to to these skills. Yeah. Uh, we're in New York City and Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. um, and uh, have graduated have six hundred students in our scholars community. Fantastic. Yeah. Of yeah. those, eighty five percent are majoring or minoring in computer science when they get into college, which ninety five percent of our college age scholars. Yeah, and do. another soft skill, if you can call it that, that you try to impart mm-hmm. is how to face even celebrate failure. Talk yes. about that. Uh, yes. Celebrating failure is a key part of our methodology for preparing the students for lifelong learning. And I should have said, the single greatest skill that anyone can have to thrive in the 21st century is the ability to continue learning on your own, mm-hmm. taking charge of your own learning. Because Coding itself, programming might end up being automated mm. by robots. You can't count on one skill to succeed in you know for your the entirety of your thirty, forty, and fifty year career today. So um, we do that by teaching the students this concept of celebrating failure. Mm. Now, um, people, um, but our boys, perhaps in particular, they hate making mistakes. In fact, some of them, many of them, and many people in general have been taught that they can't make mistakes. You know, that the second they make a mistake or that they show any weakness, they'll be attacked. Yeah. And the problem is that computer science is incredibly difficult. 
Yeah, and you will make mistakes. Oh, I would, I would, <laughs> I would think so. I know very yeah. little about coding, mm-hmm. but if you don't want to fail, don't go into coding. That's you true. You can fail all day long. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly, and that makes, um, and that's part of it. A joke we say is, "My program doesn't work, and I have no idea why." Uh, oh, my program works, and I still have no idea why. <laughs> um, and the importance is continuing to work at it. What's called often called a growth mindset. Yeah. Uh, so by teaching the students that actually if you're making a mistake it means that you're trying to do something difficult mm-hmm. actually that's something that you should celebrate no and so stick with it and each time you fail you are that means that you're doing something really hard which means you're in a position to learn right uh, so in the classroom we'll uh, teach students to when they make a mistake to yell out i have failed mm-hmm when something doesn't work that they've been working on, I have failed, and everyone claps mm-hmm. and claps to celebrate that. And they'll even start um, logging it on the walls, um, tracking it. And of course, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that of course we don't all want to be successful, but it's a way of encouraging the students to learn from their failures and also to speak about them. You know, I had um, give well on the Mm -hmm. show recently, and they were telling me that they have a Slack channel where everybody uh, catalogs the mistakes they've made. So -hmm. if you make a mistake, you go right to that Slack and you put down, I made a mistake doing this, and Mm -hmm. everybody in the organization does it. Because if you can normalize mistakes or failure, boy, that is such a big piece of the pie. Yes. Yes, it is. And it's, this is an, an area that companies, that tech companies have been attuned to for a long time. I think my insight and our insight was that this really crucial shift in priorities was not making its way into black and Latino communities mm-hmm. um, at the point where they really needed it. And so we are f- allowing for that connection with this, you know, with our partnerships with companies, with this curriculum that we're developing of taking these really um, high-level insights that companies like GiveWell, you know, mm. for example, which is a technology company, it's a tech-enabled platform, um, are attuned to, but taking them into spaces, 70% of our students are on free reduced lunch or financial yep. aid. You know, um, 85% are black and Latino. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is information that they they don't know. People in their network don't know because there are so few black and Latino people in tech. Their parents don't know it. Even their teachers don't know it. Um, so we're providing that connection. And what's happened, which is great, is that once, which shows that this isn't about ability, it's about knowledge, is that when we, at the high school level, expose the students to not all the skills, but to the fact that these skills are important, they're able to chart their own paths into tech and they're proving so successful. We have um, two students now um, who have accepted full-time offers from major technology companies as software engineers, um, including one at Google. Mm-hmm. These are some of our earliest students because we only have a handful, perhaps five, graduated graduating, um, graduated seniors. Yeah, your first class. Uh, yes, yeah. our first class. And so it shows that the, uh, the impact is really working. Yeah. In fact, some of them are even turning down jobs or getting so many offers, which is great. You know, at the end of this summer intensive, they have to do a capstone project. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Yes. Um, Learning by doing. 
Um, and project-based learning is is a huge part of our curriculum because that's how it works in in tech. You have to build something and have a portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, you also uh, so that's something that you can demonstrate, and our students will um, post their projects to uh, to their GitHub accounts. Uh, second. It's also important, this concept of a demo, which is where you build something. You build it with other people, a team where everyone has roles. Collaboration. Uh, collaboration, exactly. And then uh, you actually present it, meaning you show it to everyone and and talk about it. Uh, this is a, a classic practice for engineers, and so we do it in our program at the end. Um, some of the projects are um, – there was a video game – that was actually about the stages of grief. Mm. Um, you know, many of our students, being from, uh, you know, from like having a high poverty concentration, also experience many adverse health challenges. We've had um, two students actually um, already already pass away. Mm. Uh, one from uh, a long term illness, and one unfortunately from gun violence. Wow. Um, but so these um, these issues are much more prevalent. So that is one. Uh, that's one final project that we had. We've also had, um, you know, translators, um, news apps, um, a, a lovely a Twitter app that was uh, a Twitter um, sort of API um, app that was about uh, cleaning up um, cleaning up garbage in your um, in your community. Uh, an app called Hell that was about forming um, an instant study group. When you're in the libra- library, working on your, uh, doing things within your social network, uh, a number of sneaker shopping platforms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll be honest, these, this kicks thing, kicks on fire. It's um, it's huge. You're over uh, my head now. <laughs> oh yes. Oh, streetwear. <laughs> streetwear is. Um, but you know, so many of these things you're talking about too selling. are real life things. Yes. Uh, as people said, you know, sometimes in Silicon Valley, it's how to order a pizza with one click instead of two. Mm-hmm. This is grief. Mm-hmm. And this yes. is study groups. And these are things that they're experiencing. So the apps really have so much more resonance and meaning than some of the junk that we get. Uh, they do. And the impact on our say our society and civilization yeah. of having a more diverse group of people with this superpower of being able to start and build new technologies will be good for everyone. Yes, it will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because the people with who've had these problems are the best ones, best positioned to be able to solve them. They're closest um, to the solution. Exactly. But, you know, wealth, uh, wealth inequality is bad for is bad for everyone. You know, the lack of strong um, software in in government, mm-hmm. you know, in schools, in education, in poverty alleviation, these things are challenges for everyone. So that's what really excites me and why we're so committed to growing Ulster Code, that we feel we are um, the um, a leading, if not the leading um Learn to code organization focused on young men of color. I know um, you believe um, in measuring impact right yes. from the get go. Yes. How do you go about doing that, and what has your impact been? Uh, well, we. Uh, how do we measure our impact in so many, in many, many different <laughs> ways? There's there's a framework, there's logic model, um, at, with uh, setting a clear goal for what the program is uh, supposed to do, and as you know, our end result is that. Um, our students get jobs in technology within a year of graduation. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so having a clear that's metric. That's nice and simple. Yeah, that's good. It yeah, is. yeah, really. It is. But then there are a number of intermediary steps. Now, so for example, um, out of our six-week summer intensive program, uh, we measure, well, how much more um, confident do you feel about mm-hmm. majoring in computer science? Uh, ironically, sometimes the number goes down, and this is actually a positive thing. Like sometimes it goes way down because they have a more accurate sense of, of what it is. Involved, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but overall, for the majority, it goes yeah, it goes yeah. up. That's one thing that we measure uh, in. Uh, most recent years, we believe seventy around seventy percent of our students report deciding to work harder in school because they've done our summer programs. Mm-hmm. These are some of the things that are evidence of our impact. You know, but broadly speaking, our students are persisting in four-year colleges and in computer science at a much higher rate than typical Black and Latino boys. Of, of their income background. Speaking so that's, of ce- what, we, that's yeah. what we look at. Speaking of celebrating failure, you've mm-hmm. addressed one of your failures as a mm-hmm. founder, and that was maybe not paying as much attention to branding yes. as you wished you had. Talk a yes. little bit about that. Tell me what you're doing to brand the organization now. Uh, well, we are... Um uh, yes, I I failed to do branding because it seemed like a waste of money. And who, <laughs> who who cares about branding? I failed to realize that today in the technological world, how to come forward on digital platforms is is a specific expertise that um, that is very expensive, uh, but that that that's very worthwhile. So I did I I backed into it and I spent uh, a lot to re uh, to create branding for the organization that we feel now is is really good, and yeah. we're looking to grow and invest in um, you know in our marketing and communications. Uh, but actually, there's something else that. Um, a lesson that I've learned from starting and growing this organization. You know, we're now um, a roughly uh, an organization with about uh, 25, 30 full-time equivalents mm-hmm. um, as far as how, how large we are in two cities. And it started from just an idea uh, when it was only me working on it. And, of course, I was unpaid. Uh, and um, it's the importance of talent and, um, and people, you know, and culture and hiring and how to really build an organization but with with people. And that's something that uh, I definitely had to learn and I'm still learning as as a leader. Yeah. Well, share some thoughts on that. I mean, there's mm-hmm. nothing more important than a corporate culture. Mm-hmm. And having a magnet that attracts people and then retains people, what have been some of the things you've done at All-Star Code to make it that irresistible workplace? Well, um, one thing that we've that we've always had from the get go is a very clear mission mm-hmm. and vision for what we're doing. And from the beginning, I was so felt so lucky to have attracted amazing people. And I think that's why, um, in a way, it also became a weakness because I never had. I, I was always able to attract great people, even from my first job descriptions. I was amazed that they wanted to come work for me. Uh, so that's something that we always did well. Now on the retention and autonomy, I just wasn't. Um, I wasn't attuned to uh, the difference between driving to a short-term outcome versus what could sometimes hurt your long-term outcomes. You know what was no, what was exactly happening. What you're saying, yeah. yeah, and that the and so the you know so the work environment was um, you know was. It was more chaotic, and it made people less productive, and um, you know, and not as fun a place to work. Yeah. It, but I will say that 
still from the beginning, the corporate culture of All Star Code has always had, you know, a really high degree of talent. Has also a really high level of professionalism. Mm-hmm. Um, of mission alignment. Everyone, I'm so proud that everyone in our organization really cares, really cares about what they're doing and feels um, and feels that their work is contributing because it is. We yeah. are a startup. Um, everyone is, you know, is at capacity uh, in um, in feeling aligned to uh, to the impact of their work, which is vital for nonprofits. Yeah. Uh, we do have some as we've evolved and. And grown and matured, we've articulated some elements of our corporate culture. Uh, one is uh, competency, mm-hmm. uh, community, uh, and um, and lifelong learning. Uh, and these, uh, having thought about these things from uh, you know from the get go, I think is something that makes us distinctive. Particularly this uh, this emphasis on learning. We have we encourage professional development, uh, the taking of classes. Uh, employees uh, eligible only after a certain time yeah. but, um, are encouraged to take classes, um, are also encouraged to just learn tools, uh, learn learn new things just because someone doesn't know um, you know, n- know a particular tool or skill set, that doesn't mean that they can't get that job. Uh, they just demonstrate that, that they're willing and able to learn it. Um, That's a smart so. investment because I think mm-hmm. one of the reasons that most people leave nonprofit organizations, and they tell me all the time, is that they stopped learning. Mm-hmm. And once you've stopped learning, you move on. Yes. And uh, so that is, that is so critical. Uh, yes, a certain um, – Especially now, as donors have become more demanding of nonprofits in a way, ask, expecting nonprofits to behave in ways that are that are similar to how for profits behave, you have to pay people more. You have to hire um, people who are you know who are big thinkers, mm-hmm. and that's that's the challenge. You know, if you have, when you have someone who just wants to do their job and stick with their job, you know what? They're happy to stay there twenty five yeah, years. Yeah. So I think that the I think you even said that was one of your challenges to be a big thinker and to dare because you're such mm-hmm. a perfectionist. Yes, yes. <laughs> it should be noted, you come from a very high-achieving family. Your father was Reginald uh, Lewis, who operated the largest black-owned business in the United States back in the day, that being TLC Beatrice. And when he passed away, suddenly your mom took over the enterprise. Tell us a little bit about your parents and your upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, thank you. My Both my parents are an inspiration to me, but are um, inspirations in their respective communities. Uh, now, my father, who died uh, in 1993, um, but remains a very um, powerful presence in the business community, particularly in the black business community mm-hmm. uh, and in finance, as a result of his book called Why Should White Guys Have, Have All, All the, the Fun, fun right. uh, which is uh, a posthumous autobiography uh, that is, um, you know, that, that rem- that's a classic, a classic yeah. of the genre that remains very popular. Um, so uh, when I uh, grew up, I was born, he was a lawyer, but then he bought TLC Beatrice uh, through a, a large acquisition when I was eight, and we moved to Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had a very um, sort of global lifestyle. My mother is an immigrant from the Philippines, so I'm also an immigrant as well as being a black American. And uh, so I went to an international school. Uh, I learned I learned French and I also learned Spanish. I had friends from all over the world. So I was able to have a very, um, very varied upbringing. Uh, but also there was a lot of pressure. Oh, yeah. Uh, my parents were classic strivers. Mm-hmm. You know, they're born, they're technically greatest generation, you know, born during the war. 
and uh, you know, just were asked to work hard and achieve, go to good schools. They both became lawyers. Then they moved to New York City in 1968. Um, I'm sorry, they they both moved there in 1968. Met there, mm-hmm. decided to get married, and kind of took on the city. And so, striving, goal oriented, achievement, you know, grades. Uh, the expectations. Um, we did, um, there was a family talent show that my father insisted that uh, that, that we hold and um, with, with myself, but then also all my cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the other kids are just there being normal. Yeah, you know? kids. <laughs> <Being> <laughs> kids. And I choreographed this, like, elaborate gymnastics performance, uh, you know, it's it's choreographed to the music where my mother is playing. Just I took these things very seriously uh, because that's that's how I was raised. So it's a lot of pressure. Well, let me close with this, Christina, and what you just said. I think leads to the final question, and it could be argued that the most significant impact that you've had is helping bring race to the forefront in the tech sector. And getting people at least conscious and aware of who is not there, which would certainly include boys and men of color. Are you optimistic that with this realization things will actually change? Or are you concerned that they're really not going to change all that much after all? Well, Darren Walker, the president of the Ford Foundation, uh, says the enemy is hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes, I am hopeful that things can change. And in the uh, since 2013, when I founded All Star Code, the conversation about the lack of the lack of racial diversity in tech and in engineering has gone 10x, if not 100x, mm-hmm. because it was there was so little awareness before. And that's only a positive. Is it enough? No. And the numbers, as far as number of blacks and Latinos studying computer science, persisting in it, and then also getting jobs, it's they haven't moved um, as much as we need. In fact, in some ways, because so many groups, uh, so many people are going into computer science, the share of blacks and Latinos in computer science in some ways is declining. I hear you. The absolute because, number of people go up, but the percentage yes, goes down. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So failing, the growth isn't even failing to keep pace mm-hmm. with um, with the growth from everyone else. Uh, but Still, the change in at least awareness and knowing that this is a problem has been um, has been really positive. Um, it's uh, it's very positive. For instance, what uh, what some people have started to do is to start gathering data by race and gender together. Mm-hmm. So that means that you would look at say women who are white. And as well as men who are white, not just like lump them all together uh, and then say like white people and Asians. And so you can compare Asian men, Asian women, black men, black women, Latino, and be able to look at these things independently as well as together. And that makes a huge difference because you could have a company that's 50 percent male, female and have a number of Latin, the number of Latinos or African-Americans that are, it's proportional to the population. But if all of them are of one gender, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 that disparity can hide in the numbers. So that's a really positive uh, data move that, that's happening um, in, uh, in tech and, and more broadly in the social sciences. And that will help move yeah. it 
all forward yes. once you get that kind of data. Well, Christina Lewis, the founder and president of All Star Code, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us about your website and how people can help if they're inspired to do so. All Star Code recently completed a five-year strategic plan that calls for growth in five cities in five years to 5,000 students, mm-hmm. which would be a huge um, growth in the numbers of black and Latinos studying computer science in high school. And uh, we're we're looking for help. You can go to our website at allstarcode.org, A-L-L-S-T-A-R-C-O-D-E.org, um, to learn more about what we're doing. We're looking for um, uh, education partners in um, across the country as well as uh, companies interested in funding us here in New York and Pittsburgh, but also across the country, uh, as well as just general um, su- uh, general support. Finally, we do have applications open for our summer program. Uh, you can go to our website, again, allstarcode.org, and, um, and figure out how to apply. Well, thanks, Christine. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Denver. And that is this week's show. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do return next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving.